When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who shaped me. If you're on the Kent Coast, come and buy it from the Margate Bookshop, my lovely local. This week, our guest is the poet, playwright and powerhouse Nikita Gill. Nikita's voice has had a huge impact on hundreds of thousands of people. Her poetry and prose books include Our Soul is a River, Wild Embers, Fierce Fairy Tales, and her latest book, Great Goddesses, a collection that uses figures and themes from mythology to explore and interpret contemporary feminist themes. This book has inspired a one-woman show, and Nikita is currently writing a festive feminist play based on the Krumpus myth. We talked about the reality of reading and writing in a second language, the beloved books that get borrowed but not returned, why you should read along with your audio books and the surprising appearances of Geoffrey Archer. So, Nikita, um, off the subject of books, but I'm long to ask you all about the Krampus. Yes. Yes, so I am actually... We've changed the name of the Krampus to the Krampus because it just sounds a bit cuter, I think. The Krampus. The Krampus. Like a <laughs> Yeah, like a Krampus. Um, it's basically a story between a monster and a little girl and how the monster has her own demons to fight. So the Krampus in this is a, is a female character, is a woman. so it's an entirely woman-led play. And I'm really excited about it because I think it's, it's because it's an entirely woman-led play with an entire woman cast, I think it's going to be a lot of fun and a lot of little girls are really, and older girls and women are going to really enjoy it. So it'll be good. <laughs> is it a Christmassy at all, yes, a sort of festive? It's a ah, it's a Christmas play. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and when's it on? Is that this year? Or? Yes, it's on at the Lawrence Patley Theatre this year on the 11th of December was when it opens. I am paranoid because I haven't finished writing yet. So yet. So we've got all of the other stuff to do as yet. But so what's the, Can you tell me about the research? Because all I know about the, the Krampus or Krampus is sort of vague, you know, from the, the films. And I know this is a character. Is the Krampus sort of Nordic or... Yes, so... Um, the, so the Krampus, because I've kind of... I've taken the roots of the character, but I've kind of turned her into something very different. Um, and I've changed her origin story. Um, the Krampus basically is the exact opposite of St. Nick or Santa Claus. And the idea is that when people left coal, um, yeah, when the idea that Santa left coal, that coal is basically a sign to the Krampus that you must take this child away, ah. steal the child away and like 
eat it or teach it a lesson. Or that's the that's the origin story of the Krampus. And we have taken that a little bit, but we've moved away from that and we've turned it into more like a family or dysfunctional family drama. So it's going to be lots of fun. There's lots of humor, of course, because monsters interacting with little girls always have humor involved. I think it's going to be lots of fun. We'll see what we can do with it. But I did a lot of research fairy tales wise because I wrote Fierce Fairy Tales a little while ago and that first shelf of mine is just you know, fairy tale related books. Ah, I really enjoyed. Yes, I wanted to ask. I see a lot of Angela Carter in her beautiful fairy tale edition. We love her. <laughs> we love Angela Carter. When did you first read her? When did you meet her? You know, I was really young. I think I must have been about sixteen, and I'm glad I was sixteen and not like thirteen, right? Because some of her stories can be quite violent. Mm. Like there's like so much stuff in her stories which is like there's pedophilia, there's like necro- uh, necrophilia, there's it's it's just there's so much violent stuff and I think when I if I had read her when I was 13 I would have been put off completely. Um but I read her when I was a bit older and a bit more of in a rebel phase of like I'm going to read all the books everyone tells me not to read and yeah, so that's when I picked her up and um it was The Bloody Chamber which I read first. Ah. Yeah. It's a, I, I don't have that book on me. I, I tend to lend out a lot of my books, especially books which I've really enjoyed. So one of the books which is gone from my massive Greek mythology pile is Circe by Madeline Miller. Oh, I'm yeah. <laughs> so longing to read that because I've heard so much about it. You're going to love it. It is such a good book. I also think that it is worth getting the audiobook if you can because oh. Perdita Weeks reads out the audiobook and she just, her voice is so rich and beautiful that it kind of really brings the story to even further life you know which madeline miller does a great job with with her descriptions anyway but yeah um she's good like that isn't she (laughs) top describing well done madeline miller do you listen to many audiobooks recently i've started and i think it's because so i found myself getting really distracted very quickly and it's because our phones are designed to distract us right and i spend because i work with social media a lot I spend a lot of time on my phone. And it's funny when my brain does that thing where it goes, ping, you haven't checked Instagram like in two hours. You should probably do that. And I go, oh, okay. And that's it. That's me gone for like two hours. So I started getting audiobooks because I thought it would be quite cool to sit with the audiobook and the actual book and like really immerse myself in oh, it. So you've got the, it's in your ears and it, so there's no way you can... Exactly. Oh, exactly. So like singing songs at church. Yeah. You've got the hymn sheet. Exactly. Exactly. So for uh, Stephen Fry's both his mythos and heroes, that's what I did. And of course Stephen Fry reading out anything. Mm. He could read out a menu and it would sound <laughs> it would sound very intellectual and interesting. But yeah, that's what I did. That's the research process. I had to get audiobooks involved simply because it made it easier to read. Yeah. And I imagine things really sink in when you're hearing them. Exactly, exactly. So I, I tried to divide up my my library into into sections, which may may not make a lot of sense to everyone in certain aspects. But silent um, system. <laughs> um, in the corner over there, I have my witchcraft books because I love reading about witchcraft, and then the joy of mindful writing. Ooh. So those are books that really inspire me when I'm going through writer's block. I was just reading something about um, the British Library and anything they've got there on kind of witchcraft and mythology and the dark arts that they've had to lock them up because witches kept coming in and stealing them. (laughs) 
Well, they are ours. I think, <laughs> I think borrowing with an intent to return. Which, um... I'm going to grab one of these. Yeah, of course, of course, of course, yeah. What is the house witch? This looks lovely. Um, so... This book, I quite love it because this is actually um, the first one of uh, Murphy Hissock's books which I picked up. And what I love about it is that it, it, it is a different take on her earlier book, The Hedge Witch, which is all about kind of making witchcraft almost in the house. But it, witchcraft is all about intent. It's all about thinking further than what your mundanity in everyday life means and making it magic. And that's what this book taught me how to do. It's like looking into your mundane and turning it into something pretty and beautiful and like almost mystical. I try to live my life like that now and it, it actually is far more interesting. <laughs> I really love that. Is that something that you were intrigued by like in your teens or did you come to it later? I came to it later. Like I think um, organized religion teaches us, all of us in every aspect that witchcraft in speci specifically Wicca, witchcraft pagan religions mm. are fundamentally devil worshipping or there's something wrong or there's mm. something bad with them always dark yeah yeah and i think it's because witchcraft is a is is very female led mm. it's very female led and because it's very female led it 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 makes organized religions which are very patriarchal uncomfortable because it's led by the divine feminine for me as a person, I found that really interesting. So I started looking into it, not to follow anything. I just found it interesting to look into it. And then, of course... Anything where there's sort of lots of women in charge and yeah. people are running scared and people are trying to stamp it out, your brain goes, there's got to be something there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I began to read, like, all about the Salem witch trials and, like, it, it, it just made me realise that people are very scared of women who have a voice who don't have a partner attached to them, mm. right? And are not mothers, like they aren't fulfilling the traditional roles. Mm. And if they aren't fulfilling the traditional roles, then what are they there for? And that's when people get a bit suspicious. And, you know, you had the Salem witch trials and you had like various witch trials across Europe where so many people were killed. And it wasn't just women, men were killed too. I, I think that's an aspect that gets forgotten mm. as well because there were so many more women that were killed than men. But there were male witches, witches, as people called them, uh, who were killed as well. Um, I did air quotes there. <laughs> then I just realized that it's a podcast. No one knows what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I divide everything up according to... So the first pile over there was my research for great goddesses. So here so we have... Um, I'm going to... I, I see Mythos, which we've mentioned. The Library of Greek Mythology and... Um, Theogony and Works and Days. Oh, Margaret Atwood. Yes. The Penelope Atwood. I, I don't know this book. Oh, it's a beautiful book. I really enjoyed it. Um, also, I'm very excited about this book. Because it's fairly slender for an Atwood. It's 200 pages long. And it's, it was, I finished it in two hours. It was such a quick read. And it's just really intelligently done, I think, because all Margaret Atwood books are. So this is, is it a mix of uh, poems and short stories? So it's interestingly done because it's almost dramatic in a way. Um, she takes Penelope's story. So part of the story is told by Penelope, who's Odysseus's wife. Mm. And the other part of the story is told by the nine slave girls that Odysseus killed in a very brutal way when he came back from, um, well, his many, many journeys to save his wife from her suitors. And the reason he killed those slave girls is never really discussed. 
as to why he did it in the Odyssey, but it's brutal and they're quite young. So part of it, it the chorus is told by, and then a part of the story is told by them in the underworld and a part of it, and then there's through flashbacks it's told when they're like above. So it's giving them a story, these nine slave girls who are like essentially butchered by the hero. So I thought that was really interesting um, and well done. And they are called the chorus in this. So it's it's very, it's almost theatrical the way that it's been written, this book. Would you ever adapt it? Oh, I would love to adapt it. I would love to adapt it for the stage. I think it would be so interesting. And I'm sure Margaret Atwood and people are listening. (laughs) This first published in Great Britain 2005. So, because obviously it's a really, really big, big year for Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Um, yeah, when did you first, did you sort of first encounter her through The Handmaid's Tale or through No, The Blind Assassin? Me too. That was one of my first. In fact, I found um I got um a beautiful hardback first edition for my birthday when I was a teenager and I just found it my mum and dad sent a bit of me was like, wonder if this is worth anything now. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a beautiful I think what was interesting was that I was very young as well, I was a teenager. So I didn't really appreciate all the nuances mm. of, of Atwood's work. Um, at the time, of course, because I hadn't really got into feminism or the study. I just started looking into Wicca at the time, which is probably why the book was so attractive to me, because I'm like, oh, look, a woman-led story. And I didn't appreciate it as much as I should. I went back to it years later because I read The Handmaid's Tale and I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, because that's how you feel when you're reading The Handmaid's Tale. It's amazing, but it's brutal. And you're just like, yeah, fight the patriarchy, you know. That's it. Again, for the podcast, your expression, that, and I think whenever anyone talks about The Handmaid's Tale, you can see, like, people dilate. Everyone's sort of eyes are wide. And it's yeah. like like reading drugs, just like, yeah. pour this in my face. <laughs> Directly into my veins, exactly. And brilliant, just now and more. <laughs> yeah, so this is a really good book, as is the one right on top. So one of my favourite writers is definitely Jeanette Winterson. I'm sorry, sorry, do you want me to, I can't quite remember where I found it. No, 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 it's, it's fine. So it's, we have yeah. Wait by Jeanette Winterson. And um, this is, again, a beautiful book. And it's the story of Atlas, um, who holds the heavens up on his shoulders, of course. And it's just a really interesting story because I feel like Atlas gets a bit neglected after the Titanomachy happens and he's kind of made to hold up the heavens on his shoulders. And she gives him, like, an after story. Which is why it's called Wait. I think it's it's just beautifully done. It's the con- it's it takes on the fact that Hercules had that task, which he had to go to Atlas for because it was Atlas's garden. He had to, you know, and he couldn't. F- it wasn't that Hercules couldn't fight the snake. I think it was just that it was Atlas's garden, and it's, so she's given like this whole story to this Titan who we basically forgot, who till date because of the Atlas Mountain still holds up the heavens, really on his shoulders and I think Jeanette Winterson does a beautiful job really and I think she's very underrated to be honest. Are there many <laughs> figures from mythology that you've met in your research that you'd like to do this for people who've been forgotten that you'd love to write about? A whole book oh yes like something like the I would love to do like a whole series really when <laughs> my editor's going to be like how many books are we writing? Um, but I'd love to do like a whole series, like with about 200 pages, like the Penelopad and Wait, which are on the Chthonic goddesses who are from the underworld. So Nyx and Hecate and Asteria, who is actually Hecate's mother. And they're all like the goddesses of the underworld who help Hades, like keep um, the underworld in check and in order. 
because it can be quite a brutal place. So I'd love to do a series just on them, like do 200 pages just talking about their, you know, their lives. It should be lovely. Do you think there's anything, you know, like with um, with witchcraft and paganism, that that's something that we've always been told, like, no, it's dark, underworld, void it, full of bad people. And actually that means that some of those stories and some of those really good lessons and inspiring people and elements get lost. I think so. I think like I am obsessed with villains and I'm obsessed with villain stories, which is why the Krampus is um, the play that we are creating is, is again a villain story. In Fierce Fairy Tales, I talked about, you know, Captain Hook's story. I talked about, I gave, I backstoried a lot of villains and kind of went, well, are they villains really? Or is that how we perceive them? Um, and I think that's what I've kind of tried to do with Great Goddesses, the monsters section as well. Are they monsters? Do we need monsters? Why do we need monsters? Why do the gods need monsters? These are all questions that I feel like people are almost scared of asking. And uh, of course, like <laughs> the other day I put it up, um, I put up this whole thing about gods and monsters and how monsters are preferable because they are at least forthcoming about the fact that they want to devour you and eat you. Whereas gods, gods are a little bit more hidden. They're more mm. mysterious. They're more... Because they do want something from you, but they're not clear yeah. about what they want. Well, do as I say, and it will work out well for you, but that bit's mysterious. Exactly, exactly. And I think that was what I found a lot in my research, is that the gods need their monsters. And they need their monsters because monsters threaten man. Mm. And then man, men pray more to the gods, because what are the gods without prayer? A lot of like great goddesses about is about the idea that there's an ecosystem of how the gods depend on people as much as people depend on the gods. Yeah, I did get like some people kind of going, what do you mean? Gods are all powerful. I'm like, are they though? Are they really? I did want to ask about your relationship with social media because yeah. I love how you share your work, especially on Instagram, as does Instagram. You have yeah. <laughs> over half a million followers. It's, like, it's one of those numbers where you're like... That's such a lot, but it's so. I find it really thrilling that that many people are engaging with your with poetry and with your words. Do you think that's something that's been a, a positive force? Does that make it easier to share things, or harder, or a bit of both? A bit of both, really. Social media has always been like um, it's 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 almost like at this point it is a necessary evil. Um, and I think someone asked me the other day, would you delete your would you ever delete your social media accounts? And I've thought about it. I've thought about it because it's, yeah, it can be so toxic, especially if you're a woman, especially mm. if you're a queer woman, especially if you're a woman of color. Um, and I take all of those boxes. So I feel like sometimes they're just people sending me DMs because they've had bad days or whatever. And they're like, yeah, I can kick a person. I feel like that happens a lot. It removes the, when you're talking to someone face to face, like I'm talking to you right now, it's not that you filter yourself, it's just that you're kinder because you don't want to A, make things awkward, B, you're just, you know, nice people. Most people tend to be you're nicer face to face. Very aware, aren't you? Here is a human, here yeah. is another one, here we both are. And you level. Because I suppose that's the other thing about social media is I think those numbers make it so terrifyingly, you know, almost binary. Yeah. And it is kind of. I suppose back to gods and monsters. You're like, well, this person is, you know, they've put themselves on this pedestal because look how many people love them. Yeah. I'm going to hate them and that doesn't matter because they're so loved and I really want to hate them because no one loves me mm. as much as these people clearly have all this love and it's not true at all, no. any of that. No, none of it is. I think, 
as people, we when you when you take away consequence, when you take mm. away these are going to be the consequences of your actions. You'll have hurt someone. Um, you'll have to face someone you're hurting. Like if if I said something awful to you right now, I would have to look at you and I would have to see how much pain that caused you. And when that's removed and it's behind a screen and you start treating people as though they're not human, it's it's dehumanizing them, right? And you go, oh, I've just said something awful. I'm just going to forget about it and say the next awful thing to the next person. That's where trolling comes from. People enjoy doing that because they're miserable themselves. And in some ways, I think that the received wisdom to just ignore it, I'm yeah. not sure that helps. No. I think that there needs to be, people need to see there are, there are consequences and you have to be a good citizen of the internet in the way that you have to be a good citizen of the world. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think because some people I do put on blast. Like when I... I, I tend not to put the death threats or the rape threats I get on blast because I don't want to trigger anyone else. But some of the things that people come to me with, I'm just like, right, this is unacceptable. You can't talk to someone like this. Like, it's just, you know, you need to learn. So I, I and I'll share it and people go, why don't you just ignore them? I'm like, because we ignored them, this is why we are in the position we are right now. Educate people, don't ignore them. <laughs> I remember, and I think it might have been when we first sort of became yeah. internet friends, you being brilliant because we were both in a picture and there were loads of women, yeah. all fantastic writers. <laughs> and there was this man who was like, oh, oh, but if it was a picture of all men, people would be very upset, but it's okay to have all women. <laughs> oh, and he also, he also was like, oh, these are all white women. And I was like, no, there are about three women of color in this. Because you are so racist, you think that all people of color come in one shade. You've kind of used your lens to like look at. So it was really, I think it was me and Charmaine. We kind of just went in on the guy. It was great. But it is, it's a, it's a, it's a lesson, isn't it? Because the next time he does that, he will think that last time this happened to me, maybe I shouldn't. Well, one would hope. <laughs> but oh. I wanted to ask, you've got the collected stories of Jeffrey Archer. That's not <laughs> I would have predicted to see on your shelves, Nikita. But um, what, that's what I love about this. Would you not judge here? Um, actually, uh, so I make very long trips from India back home. And from, you know, home back there. So it's about eight hours by plane. And um, this actually I picked up at a shop in India. Um, because it was at the airport and I was like... <gasps> I have no books with me. I have no books with me and I've got an eight-hour journey. Panic, right? And they had, I think because Jeffrey Archer had been visiting at the time or something, they had a bunch of Jeffrey Archer books and everything. And I, I love short stories. It was the only short story collection that they had. And I was like, okay, I'll buy this one. And it actually is quite, I quite like Jeffrey Archer's um, The Red Herrings. Is that Seven Red Herrings or something? He's written an entire collection of short stories where there's a red herring at the end of each one. And I really enjoyed those because I was like, oh, I don't often read this. This is very cool. I quite like it. So I do have like a very eclectic collection of books, as you can I mean, see. As well, I can <laughs> see why that's a great um, airport to buy because you get a lot of book for your buck. Yeah. They're all short stories there um, in that particular oh, yeah, shelf. Yeah. So yeah. Alan Bennett, Untold Stories. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that Miranda July book. Oh, now I'm brilliant. Him more than you. Brilliant, yeah. Um, like, oh, I don't know this writer here. Um, Oh, it's uh, Jampa Lahiri, I think. Yeah, Jampa Lahiri. She... Interpreter of Melodies. Oh, that's a great name. What, when you read the Pulitzer Prize, the year 2000. Yeah, yeah, she is brilliant. Um, she's, uh, she's also another woman of colour. I kind of really associate... I, I really identify with her stories because they're really beautiful. 
Oof, this looks great. It is a really good book. It's a really good book. I also like, I picked it up. I think it's like a pre-loved book, as I call ah. them. So I picked it up like at a, at a charity shop because I was like, oh, I haven't seen this book before anywhere. Yeah, and it was a great read. Oh, fantastic. Mm. I am going to read that. Yeah, yeah. And I'll probably, I'll forget. <laughs> and then somebody will say on Instagram. You're welcome to borrow it if you want. Are you sure? That's incredibly yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I post it back. Thank you so much. I really love that. Um, and then I've I'm got... To... Oh, this oh. is another book that I really, really want to read. Yes. And I haven't read. Alyssa Evans. Old Baggage. Is this... Because um, I know she writes books. Does she write for children and adults? Yeah. Oh, I love this cover as well. So it's, this looks very sort of 1940s, It's 30s, very lovely. It, it's, it's a oh, beautiful... Oh, it's 1928. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a back. beautiful, beautiful book. I do think it was it was recommended to me actually because my local Waterstones I just walk in there and we have like long chats because I love the ladies over there they're very nice people one of the ladies over there was like you should read this book I think you'll really enjoy it because you're you're such a feminist and I'm like yes I am so this is <laughs> can I ask you just read those first three paragraphs it is 1928 Matilda Simpkin is a woman with a thrilling past and a chafingly uneventful present in her youth she was a militant suffragette. Jailed five times, she marched, sang, smashed windows, and heckled Winston Churchill. But nothing since then has had the same depth, the same excitement. Now in middle age, Mattie is looking for a new purpose. Giving the wooden club she still keeps in her bag a thoughtful twirl, she's struck by an idea. But what starts as a brilliantly idealistic plan is derailed by a connection with Matty's militant past, one which begins to threaten every principle she stands for. Oh, I, just, I love that idea. <laughs> it's such a fantastic kind of, you know, that the energy of someone, you know, having so a really much. specific thing to channel that rebellion into. And then, what do I do now? I think it's also a really good look at the idea of... Um, if you were a rebel woman when you were younger, what happens to you in middle age? Mm. Right? So it's really beautifully written, this. Um, kind of gave me a bit... Because, like, I'm 32 now, so I was kind of like, oh, my God, uh, what am I going to do? That's it. I was like, just write more books. <laughs> we live in a very fortunate time where we can just... We have, you know, things that we can do. But what happens to someone in 1928? I think that's really interesting. <laughs> Do you ever reread books? Yeah, old uh, Cersei I've read like three times this year. <laughs> um, because I, in my spare time, that's all I do, I read. Like, I'm very fortunate that this is what I do as a job. And I think it was Elif Shafak, actually, I was listening to the podcast uh, yesterday and I heard the Richard Ayoday and the Elif Shafak one because I... Oh, I love, love, love Elif Shafak. She's brilliant, isn't she? Her book, a book. Have you read that yet? No, the, not yet. Now, 10 minutes, 38 seconds in The Strange World. I think I have to get... I'm like, I know it's a time and then in The Strange World. Um, but I just... I think she keeps getting better and better. She I think she's magnificent. She? Every year, every... I'm like, can you please stop setting the bar so high? Like, it would be nice if you, like, just just, just once. Yeah, no. just a year off. Yeah. Let's just catch up. Yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We'll be back to Nikita soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. A book so blazingly and dazzlingly brilliant that buying it is probably as important as paying your electricity bill. This week, it's the book I feel as though I've been reading for about a year, Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman, published by Beggar Press. At the time of recording, this is shortlist for the Booker Prize with the winner to be announced. It's compelling, maddening, meditative, anxiety-inducing, funny, beautiful and honestly absolutely unlike anything else I've ever read before. It's the thousand-page stream of consciousness of an Ohio housewife coming to terms with recovering from cancer, raising a family, being a mother and a daughter, living in America and constantly negotiating the gap between duty and desire. There were times when I thought this book would break me, but I think it's changed me for the better. It's the state of a nation book that we all need to read right now. And if you go for it, good luck. That's Duck's Newburyport by Lucy Elman, out now. Now back to Nikita. Yeah, and I illustrate all my own stuff as well, which is why you see all my illustration stuff just lying here. I don't think I knew that. That's so cool. Yeah, I illustrate all my own books. Have you always drawn? Always, all my life. I think I just, God, it's so lazy of me. I just assumed. It's like, (laughs) that is, so what do you, do you feel like a, a writer, an artist, are you primarily a writer? Are you a... I just, I think I, f- I find it really hard to, to, put, to put myself into... I call myself a storyteller who likes to illustrate. That's it. Because I think if I call myself a poet, I think like there are poets who get really upset if I call myself a poet because they're like, you're not writing poetry. Um, 
And then that that sounds mad to me because I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're a poet. (laughs) Books of I've written I've written several books of poetry, but okay. Um, But there's also like I think it's because the kind of poetry I write, I'm writing for for young people, Mm. and I'm writing especially for young women. And I make no bones about that. That's who I am writing for because I say often that a lot of my poetry and my writing is a love letter to my younger self, right? And it's the stories which I wish I had heard when I was younger. It's the poems which I wish I had read when I was younger. It's the access which I think other people should have, which I didn't get. And a lot of my audience is like 16, 17, 18-year-old girls kind of going, you know, I wish, I'm so glad you said this to me. And there's like, you know, their mothers going, I wish I had a book like this when I was young, which kind of made me realize that there's another side to all of these stories, you know. But yeah. (laughs) real act of love I think that and I think it just proves as well that in some ways the more specific you can be the better that you do need to have that person in mind when you're telling a story even if it's past you and then it's sort of astonishing how very universal that can be yeah exactly what my favorite thing in the world about being part of the book world is that I get to I get to hang out with some of my favorite authors and like I get to hang out with other writers and like, and these are people whose work I've loved and like I've read when I was growing up or, uh, you know, and now I, I can talk to them and I can text them and go, hey, what's up? That is yeah, such can a fan girl. tell us who is your most sort of exciting author encounter? Who's the oh. first person you met? Oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to them. <laughs> Nikki Shukla, he was on the podcast as well. Yeah, I was like, oh my god! Like I fan, I was like, I'm going to make a total idiot of myself when I meet him in real life. I'm like, no, no, no. But yeah, he was right there, and a whole person, and like the person who's written all these great books, but also like. So when I first came here, um, a few years ago, so I was came here eight years ago. But the first book that really made me sob was The Good Immigrant, and of course he was, you know, behind that. He was behind the whole. And like the fact that I kind of like was able to meet him and talk to him and like, you know, after reading a few of his books and everything, it was such a surreal experience. I'm like, oh, my God. And like now I literally can text him and go, hey, Nikesh, what's up? And he can and he responds to me and everything, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I really love that. And I love that as well as being a brilliant writer, that he has created I think a real community for, you know, not just sort of people of colour, but people who love writing and reading. I think he's such a a force for good in the world of publishing. He really is. And he he's all about community building. I've always said, like, there's many types of writers in the world. And Nikesh kind of, you know, is that really rare quality of writer who is not just extremely talented and a brilliant writer, but also someone who loves you know, building community and kind of bringing writers together and giving them the, you know, the tools and the weapons almost we need to like go out into the world and like, you know, do our thing. It's it it's such a rare quality of writer because, you know, there's so many writers out there who will who'll be like, okay, I've made it. I don't need anyone else to kind of come up with Let's me. Roll the ladder up. Yeah. Let's burn the ladder. Yeah, but people like Nikesh, like that's they make all the difference in the world. They're basically responsible for generations of writers you know, who come after them. Because I think, you know, you can't be what you can't see. It's just anything. And I think, you know, I'm really glad that I can read stories that I adore and I don't see myself and I don't need to look at myself. But equally, I think it's very important to know if you want to write and you want to create, that it's it's possible. You, yeah. How, how do you begin to do it if mm. you don't, there's no 
you just need a little purchase in that world. You're not just <laughs> reading something that you connect with. Yeah. I see The Good Immigrant USA. It's really good. It's Oh, okay. and that's also in it. We've got a load of them. Another, oh, guess because you've got uh, Pooh and a Bell yeah, in Search well, of Silence. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful book. And I think it's because it's such a personal book. Mm. Um, so I, I, again, books that make me cry. But another really good book definitely was The Diary of a Somebody by Brian Bilston. He's, he's brilliant because I think the way that he, um, it's a lost art really. And I think it's not taken as seriously as it should be. Um, being able to make people laugh yes. with poetry. Like, it's such a beautiful quality. Like, I did an event with him and I was like, <laughs> why did I do this? Because he's up there, like, the whole audience is, like, in peals of laughter. And I was like, did I have to go after you? Like, really? But yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant in, in even, like, the serious poems that he's written. They're so beautifully thought out. Have you, have you read his Refugees poem? Yes, a, a while ago. Because but... he does that thing where you read it... Mm down and then he says at the bottom like now read it backwards and it means the exact opposite of what which I thought was so clever because I was like wow the entire meaning of the poem changes it's fantastic absolutely fantastic yeah and it's a way of making something that needs to be said and shared mm. you know as accessible as it can be that exactly. it's not just a sort of you know no one is preaching to convert it here it's a good thing you mentioned accessibility because I feel like this is a conversation which keeps coming up in the literary world, which I just think is, it's so ridiculous, right? So accessibility is a really good thing. It's really good for people like me who like speak and write in their second language. It's really good for, like Elif Shafak was talking about how she is not, she isn't a snob at all. She reads diversely mm. and she enjoys reading diversely. There's so much in that podcast that I really associated with. She talks about being a nomad. That's me as well. Like, Having this for me is, is, a, is a boon because I've spent most of my adult life shifting between house to house, country to country. So being able to like have a, a space for my books and my writing is so important. But she talks about like the, the concept almost of accessibility, but she says it talks about it in the way, way of snobbery. It's so important to have books that people can read, which lead them to other books. Mm. It's like a, a terrible metaphor here, but it's like breadcrumbs, right? Like, yes. um... Hansel and Gretel. So each each breadcrumb re leads you somewhere. So having like say a, a you know an accessible poetry book will lead you to the more inaccessible poetry. You don't start with the inaccessible poetry. That's how people get put off it. Right? It's like hip hop and how you can trace everything back to rapper's delight, yeah. and then you can trace everything back to the Canterbury Tales. You yes. can trace. You can start with Marion Keys, who I adore, yeah. and think is brilliant, and people love her. Yeah. And just, but you can, you know, it doesn't take that long to get back from a reference that she makes to something, and then you're then you're at Chaucer. Exactly, exactly, and that's that's what I mean about the accessible books leading to the inaccessible books. It's they all have a part to play. They all have a role to play, and to pretend that they don't, is incredibly short-sighted and not a very intellectual approach to it at all, is it? It's like lacks nuance. a young reader, other than the idea that it was a little bit dark and quite adult and yeah. maybe people didn't want you to read it, was there a writer that led you to Angela Carter or anyone you were reading before her? That I think, so Angela Carter was when I was older, when I was a teenager, but I grew up like on fairy tales, right? So my mum got me Hans Christian Andersen. I think there's a copy there, the Grimm's Brothers and the Hans Christian Andersen books, uh, Charles Perrault. Um, but that's all, you know, the Western I was, yeah, folklore. I was wondering, whether, were you reading much in English or 
No, absolutely. Like, um, because I grew up in a, you know, in a house which, which was bilingual, um, we were very lucky because we were educated in both languages. So we had all the Western folklore, mm. mythology, everything which was being read to me by my mum. You know, from or the reason why those are all hardback books which I picked up was because I wanted that feel that, you know, my mum used to read me the stories from old hardback books. And then we had like, you know, stories which were like Panchatantra, which was more like Indian folklore or like, and, and, and that was more, because India is so big, there's different, each state has its own folklore. So Punjabi folklore and Kashmiri folklore. But Panchatantra was something which I really, I went back to all the time. And then, of course, there was the Hindu mythology books, so like the Ramayan. And we had these really great uh, graphic novels, which were called Amar Chitra Kathas. And they basically were like really thin little, almost comic books, which were made about folklore and mythology of the gods. And it was brilliant because I grew up with all of that. And I don't remember a time Brings I was back to accessibility, really, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, because they had managed to make them into these accessible little comic books. I knew all about it. Like, even going back into Greek mythology, Stephen Fry's books are more accessible, for sure, mm. right? Uh, the Penelope Ad and Jeanette Winterson's Weight was very accessible. And so was Circe, for that matter. They were all accessible books, Song of Achilles. And they all led to the deeper books, which were like um, Homer, you know, the Odyssey, Ovid, the Oresteia, which is not here because I lent it to a friend, actually. And of course, Apollodorus is the li library of Greek mythology. And I did, of course, I had to read multiple translations of, of Homer because I... How can you love a book but hate the protagonist, right? I didn't realize that was a possibility. I can't stand Odysseus, but I love the Odyssey. I think it's so beautiful, the story. But Emily Wilson's uh, translation of the Odyssey is probably, yeah, that was really important to me. <laughs> because I feel like she gave it almost like a more feminist undertone. Have you read it? For shame, I've never read the Odyssey. It's one of those things where I've, there are scraps and bits and I've learned about different parts of it. Um, I've, I've seen the Simpsons ripoff. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course I've read The Odyssey. We've all read The Odyssey. Actually, no. No, I haven't. So this book was the mm. one that started it all. The, the illustrated book of myths. Yeah. That which was is, the, the first breadcrumb. Which is the first breadcrumb because it's probably the most accessible one, right? So it started with that and then I moved on to, you know, Stephen Fry's was the next, then Circe and Song of Achilles, then Pat Barker. And then on to, so Robert Graves, the Greek myths, was so helpful to me when writing Great Goddesses. Did you start reading when you knew you were going to write this book and you were going to research, or did you get into it and think there's a book in this? Do you know, I've always loved Greek mythology, and I've always wanted to write a book about the Greek goddesses, especially the for forgotten mm. Greek goddesses. And that's, you know, what I intended to do, and that's how I got into that's why I wanted to write the book because I was like, I'm going to write this book on Greek mythology and then I'm going to write a book on Hindu mythology, but I want it all to be told from the women's perspectives, all of it. So when I proposed this last year to my publisher, she was like, this is a great idea. Why not? Go ahead. And it just so happens that there are lots of retellings happening right now. So we've got Silence of the Girls. You've got Circe. I think The Face That Launched a Thousand Ships mm. by Natalie Haynes. I haven't read that one yet. Can't wait to read that. Yeah, That's people love it. <laughs> reviews. So. so moving along on the pile, so um, is this the Indian gods? Yeah, Indian gods research. So I'm having a really hard time trying to collect books on Hindu mythology. 
And I think it's because there, there just aren't many books available in this country on Hindu mythology. So I'm going to have to go when I go home this year. Um, going in November, I've got a fellowship. I'm going back and I'm going to grab a whole bunch of books and bring them back. Those were actually sent to me by my mother, the whole lot. Devdat Patnayak, the first book over there, he is one of the most brilliant scholars on Hindu mythology in my country. And he's written like a really interesting book on the gods themselves and he treats them with more nuance. And these, the Bhagavad Puranas, basically are the stories of the gods, like the almost like the Old Testament, if you will. Of course, there's like three big books on them. And then there's the, you know, the retellings, which I'm trying to collect. So Amish is very, very good with them. It's all very interesting. It's, um, it's a slow collection, which I build. And then we'll see what happens at the end. That's exciting. And it mm. must be now more than ever so frustrating when one feels as though information is infinite and everything yeah. is a Google away. Like, yeah. How do I not have these books? It's also like finding reading lists when you're not a classicist or you're not actually studying it in school or anything, isn't it? So can you talk about your fellowship? It's actually the Rex Global Fellowship. It was set up by the United Nations in India. Um, and it's for people who are basically kind of trying to make a difference in their fields. And the lady who got in touch with me, who kind of was like, I've nominated you for this thing, um, She's like, you'll have to come to India in November for three days and there'll be like conferences and everything. It's a really prestigious, very fun event that's as well. So, yeah. I was just thinking, like, oh, just, just go to India for three days. <laughs> that's I'll most be there for a week, luckily. A longer trip. <laughs> yeah, because my okay. parents are there, I'll be there for about a week. Plus, I can't go to India and not be there for at least a week because like, I'm a big fan of Indian street food. And I spend all year looking forward to that one time I'll go back home and I'll have Indian street food. So it's like, it's really good stuff. Yeah, so it's going to be really exciting. The One of the questions in the fellowship was, if we gave you the fellowship, like what would you use um, the fellowship to really... And for me, it was the environment. I'm trying to plant a tree for every five books I sell. It's about 10 books you can make from one tree. So if I thought if every five books I plant, I'm giving back more uh, than I'm taking. I don't know. I don't know if it'll work, but I, I have I have like this idea and I've already done, I've planted about seven or eight trees. So it's, it's good. That's fantastic. <laughs> Where are you planting them? Like it's, so there's a forest quite close by to here. And I read somewhere that the, the whole point of canopies is that they protect each other. And if one tree is cut down in the middle of a canopy, they, they lose their protection and they become a lot more vulnerable to the winds and everything, which I thought was a delightful little metaphor for a family, really, yeah. isn't it? It's a tree planting charity, which is very good at giving the information that helps you out. They'll send you the trees and they'll give you the information as to, you know, this is what you should do. Does everyone in your family love to read as much as you do? My brother's the only one who's not a big fan, but all of us love reading. So I, uh, my parents fostered this in me since I was a child. They bought me books. I think I started reading when I was about five by myself. So it, you know, mom used to read me stories. So it, it just, it's been... If, oh, that's such a heady moment, isn't it? Yeah. When you're like, oh, I don't need anyone here for this. I've got this. <laughs> um, it was a problem, really, for my parents, the amount I loved reading, because my school library, I used to bunk class or um, skip class to go and sit in the library and read because those books were so much more interesting than science or math or anything like that. So my mom actually had to go to the librarian and tell her she's not allowed to enter the library other than her break time. So I was banned from my school library. <laughs> That's how much I loved reading. But I suppose it was... I like to think there's like a picture of your face, like a big extra. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I do think like they had like a board on which they had to like put up like she this girl is not allowed back into the library. I can't. Is that one here? Yes. And can I ask you that this is beautiful. It's a very Isn't sweet little edition. Pam Ayres, The Last Hedgehog, illustrated by Alice Tate. I love hedgehogs. So the reason why that book is inspiring to me is we have a family of hedgehogs that comes to visit and kind of eats the dog's food and the cat's food. And I love hedgehogs. I think they're absolutely adorable. My mum, of course, is terrified because she's like, they have rabies. They have, But there's a whole little family of them. And you see them, they'll come out and there's like a mum and there's like a dad almost. I think he's the dad because he's bigger. And there's like little, 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 little three of them hedgehogs that come behind them. And I'm just like, that's why I love, you know, this little book. The fir- I've just opened it and the illustrations are so gorgeous. Yeah. But on the first page, farewell, farewell for what it's worth from the final hedgehog left on earth. Yeah. Cousin Henry, young and bright, went up in flames on bonfire night. Yeah. And I don't think I can read anymore. <laughs> It just reminds me that um, it's important to look after little creatures like hedgehogs and mice and all of those things because I have a real affection for little creatures, really. We, we, you know, when it was really, really hot, um, we were putting out water for them because it was like, oh no, what if the hedgehog, we have to save the hedgehogs. (laughs) It feels like hedgehog season and, you know, remember, remember, aware of this. (laughs) Ooh. So here, I want to give a shout out to a book I really love. I'm very excited you have um, Anna Sampson. She is fierce. You're in that, right? Yes, I'm in that. That's correct. Well, I, I, I love this book so much. I, I really love the, the neonness of it. This is, I think it's such a... I really, really like Anna. I think she's great. Oh, it? she's fabulous. If, um, if you want to give someone a gift, you should buy them this book. Yeah, it's um, a really, really great book. I might have to ask you to have a look because uh, <laughs> there's a lot in here. Yeah, this really... I, I think it's a really powerful book because... Anna does this talk, I don't know if you've ever seen it, where she actually goes through the older poets that she selected in this book. They're all women. She kind of talks about, like, where, why women, like, why there were so many poems about the night, like, that she found. And it's because women would only get to write poems either very late at night oh. after work was done or very early in the morning before the children got up. That makes so much sense. It's just, it's absolutely fascinating. Sorry, I... I'm, I'm struggling to find my own poem. So there's that. <laughs> That's going to go into the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I like a, a lovely rustly page sound. Yeah, I, I love I love like slightly yellowed pages as well. I remember I didn't know what they were called. They're called Bible pages, apparently. Bible pages? Apparently. I didn't know that. Yeah. We found the Yay! kita! We found the kita! 197. <laughs> Yeah, it was right at the bottom, wasn't it? Like, I, I also, I'm, I don't really look for my own name when it comes to mm. places because I'm busy looking at all of the other writers I love. So, I, so this is 93% stardust. We have calcium in our bones, iron in our veins, carbon in our souls, and nitrogen in our brains. 93% stardust with souls made of flames. We are all just stars that have people names. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much. I feel absolutely honoured and privileged to have this very intimate live reading. Oh, I do love this book. Who is the poet that you've discovered the most recently that's sort of new to you that you're super excited about? It can be in the last year or two years. I have just lit up then. Just the poet. Um, So I cannot stop recommending this book since I read it um, two weeks ago. It is called Everyone Knows I'm a Haunting, and it's by Shivani Ramlochan, 
And it is phenomenal because she's got poems in here which are so incredibly brave. Um, one of my favorite poems is actually the last one, which is called Vivek Chooses His Husbands. And she tackles cultural kind of, you know, um, homophobia within our culture so well and so beautifully. And at the end of the poem is beautiful because it's all about um, Vivek's relationship with his father because he's gay. Um, and it ends with, you tell him, I am the queen, the comeuppance, the hard heretic that nature intended. And I think that's so beautiful and so powerful, mm. especially because India has a very traumatic history um, or Indian people have a very traumatic history with like acknowledging LGBTQIA people. Mm. And I know this because I, you know, I'm bisexual myself. I know it's really, really difficult for me to be open about it because there's so much, you constantly feel like you're coming out and you constantly feel the verbal violence that you will go through when you do. But that's not, I mean, she's covered so many topics in this. Uh, there's a great poem called The Abortionist Daughter, which talks very powerfully about abortion in both, you know, like what it means to women you know, and, and the trauma that they go through, because I feel like when you have an abortion, people almost look at you and they kind of go, oh, yeah, but you chose to do that. So you're not allowed to really feel bad about it or feel traumatized by it or feel hurt by it. So you just keep quiet. You know, you have like groups and circles. It's still a very taboo topic, really. You know, and I think books like this do such a good job. Sorry, I totally yeah. interrupted that. This is an area that is fascinating me at the moment because yeah. this is a, a big reveal, but I'm, I'm 34. Mm. I don't think I want to have children. I'm ambivalent at best. And it's sort of what you were saying about you're a question mark and then you do what society expects you and everyone's relieved and you've been yeah. sort of ticked off. But also that ambivalence, it's not as straightforward as being like, great, I've made my decision, that's easy, everything's fine. That it's difficult... To want to do the thing that you feel that you ought to want to do yeah. and obviously as well you know I should acknowledge that I know for so many women you know that it's something they desperately long for and for yeah. various reasons it can't happen and there's so much heartbreak and heartache attached and I think that it's the thing that perhaps as someone in her 30s who's hopefully going to be writing for decades to come exploring that you know well well what is our function now because I think that perhaps more than ever, we're having women kind of questioning that and yeah. trying to live. I'm living really courageously by not having kids and not being sure that I want them. But the things that maybe even as recently as 10 years ago, you would have just done because it was expected of you yeah. by your family and by society at large. Yeah. And I think that's such a, I think it's a really rich area for art and literature yeah. created by by people to explore exactly and i think that's art makes you brave um or you that's not true you have to be brave with your art mm. like i think that's the thing and that's what shivani does so well in this book is she is so incredibly brave and she's telling so many stories which you know from the start to the finish of this book because i'm thinking about even the first poem of this book is a nursery of gods for my half-white child and she talks about um ganesh and kali and Krishna, which, you know, that's the next book which I'm writing. And I found such an intimate connection with it because she's talking about it in such a powerful and empowering way without shying away. You know, because I think sometimes with empowerment, and I'm guilty of this as well, because you're, you're looking to empower yourself and someone else who is reading, you almost shy away from the, from the cruelty and the brutality of the thing which hurt you. 
And I find that I do that sometimes. And that's something which I'm challenging myself more and more on and trying to work my way out of because there's nothing wrong in acknowledging the brutality. Yes, I think that's that's true bravery. And I think that's perhaps what, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of problematic art is built on, yeah. that needing to use material that's quite cruel and damaging in an empowering way and yeah. not allowing for ambiguity and nuance yeah yeah or like oh my for... god we need nuance more than yeah. ever <laughs> exactly in these times. yeah yeah i feel like i think twitter is like one of the worst places for nuance because you've got like a limitation of characters and everyone just gets taken out of context all the time but then this is why people do twitter threads like but then even so the other day i did an entire twitter thread about something and someone responds to it with, so you can't just say this one thing. And I'm like, there's literally about six tweets after. So it goes to show that people don't even bother to read. It's something which is very interesting. Um, I must send you the article. I read an article the other day, which basically said that our attention spans are down to about three seconds now, which is why Twitter is doing so well, which is why like websites like that, which, which you know, you don't really have to do a lot of reading, but you do some reading yes. are doing so well. Yeah. Sort of information as crack cocaine. Yeah. That you just, the more you have, the more you want, but yeah. the more new you want. Yeah, yeah. And also as, as bite-sized as you can get it. Like explain it to me, but explain it to me in seven words. You know, and I see it, I see it with poetry as well. Like when I put up a poem, which is 20 words maximum, you know, or something like that, or like four lines, mm -hmm. that poem will do well. But when I put up like a longer poem, like my recent one was A Conversation with the Sun God, and, you know, it's all about the, the nuances of loving people when you yourself are, you know, have the capacity or because you're going through trauma, mm, you, you, you could hurt someone. Oh, did you enjoy it? <laughs> I, really, I really enjoyed writing it because I like the idea of like sitting down with a god and having a conversation, like, which is why I think like those, that series I was talking about at the beginning will be so much fun. But yeah, it, it's all about this idea of like the, the nuances of loving people, right? When you are a hurt thing yourself. You know, and, and how to love them properly. Mm. Sorry, she clearly just wants attention. All of the, the backs of the sofas, which is which are damaged terribly, is because this one can't use her scratching post. <laughs> the cats we're talking about. <laughs> so gorgeous. I love her tail. She is very pretty. She's a very pretty girl, but she's a very grumpy girl. <laughs> um... Which, um, are any of these books here borrowed or are any gifts oh, no. from people? I, um, I, I think, uh, yeah, I do get like quite a few books, which uh, my friends are very kind enough to send to me when they finish writing their books. They'll send me books to review or, you know, arcs and things like that. But yeah, so if you want, you've got, got a minute to plug a pal. I will. That's exactly what I was going to do because I have my eye on a book right here. Rick Samadar's uh, I Never Said I Loved You. It is such a beautiful book. It is one of the most powerful books I've ever read because it's got it's such an unflinching story, but he does it so well. I don't know how someone could take something so heartbreaking and make it so beautiful and so humorous, but Rick does that remarkably well. My favorite thing is like at the, the back, the front of the book is Christmas morning, 2010. I'm in bed with my mother in a Bangkok sex hotel. It is my 30th birthday. How have things got so out of hand? <laughs> and then a duck. And a du that duck is called Potato. I named that duck. <laughs> ah. 
But yeah, awesome. Rick and I, Rick and I are friends, and and I think that he is just such a gifted, gifted writer. And I can't recommend this book more highly to every man who I've ever met because I think it's such an unflinching look at masculinity, but also in a humorous way. So yeah, that's a good book. <laughs> Huge thanks to Nikita. It's such an honor to have her on the podcast, and she is every bit as nourishing, uplifting, and engaging as her work. Follow her at Nikita underscore Gil on Instagram and rush out and read Great Goddesses. It's also the perfect Christmas present for your favorite feminists and anyone who needs a little consciousness raising. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, Shelf Obsessives. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, eggcast.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this from Toni Morrison. If there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.